This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom and Mind, where we dive into all aspects of perinatal mental health and wellness related to pregnancy, birth, loss, postpartum, and new parenthood. It's so much more than postpartum depression. We raise the volume on all of these topics in the hopes that someday everyone will have the support and info that they deserve before they need it. Please note this podcast is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Welcome back to Mom and Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. We have a special episode today and one that covers some pretty difficult topics. So I'm going to start out at the front letting you know that there's some sensitive topics we touch on related to postpartum psychosis and filicide. Uh, So please judge for yourself if this is something you feel ready to listen to. And if you're not at this time, come back when you are ready. We are going to be hearing about Nora and her story through postpartum psychosis and filicide. And uh, we have the honor of hearing from Nora's mother, Catherine Gall who is going to be talking about her experience from her perspective as a mother and what it's been like for her to hear and see what Nora's been through and her care and concern, especially now that Nora is in prison after filicide. We are also going to hear from Dr. Brooke Laufer, who is a clinical psychologist who picked up on this case and has been following it and in close communication with Catherine as well as Nora. So we're going to hear some personal mother perspective and also clinical perspective on Nora and her case and what is going on in her life now. Nora's mother, Catherine, after a career as a nurse manager, she became a multi-genre writer with works widely published. She had given birth twice, a daughter and a son. In 2014, she lost her grandson to filicide. Now, her shelves sag with letters from her imprisoned daughter, a bright registered nurse herself. Catherine continues to live her own life and believes in transformative power of dance, dark chocolate, and red lipstick to help her get through. Brooke Laufer is a psychologist who's been practicing since 2005. She began her clinical work in psychiatric wards with severely mentally ill, then in schools with adolescents and their families, currently in private practice doing psychoanalytic psychotherapy. After having her first child, Brooke had a disturbing postpartum OCD experience, which inspired her to begin researching, understanding, and specializing in the treatment of perinatal mental illness. She recently began work as an expert witness for women who have committed a crime during a postpartum episode. Brooke has two children of her own, along with a golden retriever and a loyal husband living and working and playing in Evanston, Illinois. What I want to make sure and clear that everybody knows before we get into this interview is that Catherine 
and Brooke both reached out to Nora to get permission for us to be talking about her life story and her situation right now. And Nora did give us permission to be having this conversation. The goal of all of this really is for both Catherine and Brooke, and I believe Nora as well, is to get information out there so that people know postpartum psychosis is something to take very seriously and that we can and should be doing a better job of noticing it, treating it, and getting people the help that they need. And beyond that, if an incident of postpartum psychosis comes with also infanticide or filicide, that we have reasonable laws in place that understand the complexity of postpartum psychosis. And instead of putting women in jail without treatment, that they get the treatment that they need. So let's meet Catherine and Brooke. Welcome, Catherine and Brooke. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi. Hello. Thank Um, you for having us. Yeah. I'm really grateful that this worked out to have you both on this episode. And so today we're just going to walk through what's gone on and where you guys are now. And so to that end, Catherine, can you start us off and let us know a bit about Nora's story? Nora worked as a registered nurse in the Women's Pavilion at West Dallas Memorial Hospital. She was crazy about babies. She was the only nurse who welcomed every newborn with happy birthday. So when she became pregnant at age 36, she was thrilled. It was what is known, I'm, I'm a registered nurse, as is Nora. It was known as a traumatic delivery. Mm-hmm. In other words, the heart tones dropped. She was a C-section. They took Leo home on a billy blanket, and he had torticollis because he was stuck. And it was a long, long time to getting him healthy. He was a bright little boy. And when he was, she knew, you know, after the fact now, that when he was two months old, that something inside of her didn't feel right. Mm. And the way that she, as many women, would characterize it, how can I be so sad when I'm so happy? Mm-hmm. How can I be so happy when I'm so sad? Right. It was baffling and confusing to her. She was not going to tell anyone. At the same time, there were mental health issues with her mate that she was dealing with. She was breastfeeding, working full time, and taking Leo back and forth to daycare. If I did a wheel, which I called the wheel of misfortune, where I put every single extenuating circumstances into this as it accelerated. I called it the wheel of misfortune. She called it how to live the love of your life and spend the rest of your life in prison. Mm-hmm. It was everything from the traumatic delivery to financial stress to the worst winter since 1936 when the cop interviewed me in the car when my then husband and I tore down there. Very flatly, she said to me, been a bad year for suicides, which was factual, Mm -hmm. but not helpful to me. Mm -hmm. She really, she held it all together in the jail, the Milwaukee County Jail, where she was subsequently abused. She was characterized by the jail psychiatrist as being high functioning. Mm -hmm. She was so devoted to this child that she was going to put up with anything. The caving began in January when she had to stop breastfeeding. And I found literature about the development of anxiety and depression 
with the sensation of breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Her lawyers didn't believe that. They had mm-hmm. never heard of that. And that's when she really caved. And then on February 17th, her partner moved out, leaving her alone in the middle of the night. And she called me hysterical. I lived an hour and 45 minutes away and I was on the phone with her constantly. And that was February 17th. The cops, the detectives knew the very next day she started Googling ways to die. Mm. They found it on her phone. How old is Leo at this point? So that was February 17th. He died March 9th. He was 14 months. Okay. He was born January 1st, Mm -hmm. 2013. Okay. Okay. And she was in the Milwaukee County Jail a week before she realized that he was dead. Mm-hmm. I said to her later on, where did you think he was? She said, I don't know. I knew he was gone. And I just thought he would come back. Uh, right. So by the time she was in that mental state, she was not really sort of present. She, she wasn't. We had 104 letters written in her defense to her character. And she was seen by, during the appeal, there was an appeal, which we could talk about why she ultimately let that go. That expert who was a, he teaches at the University of Wisconsin, he's a social scientist, that's the wrong thing, MSW, with a, also a PhD. He said, well, the person who did this was not the person that she was. <laughs> like, okay, we got that. We know that. Yeah, she suffocated Leo and half, at some point she said, this is wrong, but maybe, I, you know, I'm so confused. But she was then worried that he would have brain damage. And I cannot imagine the trauma of that night. She subsequently took pills to attempt suicide. She was doing all of these behaviors after Leo died. After Leo died. Right. So her state at the time of Leo's death was what it sounds like. I don't know if I can ask this question, but let me ask it. What you know now to have been postpartum psychosis? Right. In terms of what you think led to Leo's death, you mentioned the cessation of breastfeeding, being left by a partner, and there were some other things going on, high stress stuff, a lot on her plate. What are the other factors that you know now contributed to that? She was going to lose her job. She had worked nights for seven and a half years in the women's pavilion and switched to becoming an orthopedic nurse at Freighter. So she had to learn a whole new skill set, and then there was a new position, and she became the registered nurse for a well-known hand surgeon and was trained by a woman who had been his medical assistant for years, who is now jealous that the laws have changed. She, The medical assistant could not be putting the orders into the computer because it was electronic medical records suddenly. So Nora is, she went and got that job interviewed and she got it in September of 2013. By December of 2013, the hospital said to her, you no longer have a job that you are still employed. She was told that on December 13th. What that meant was the physician wanted to fire her because she would not stay until eight o'clock at night. She said, I can't. I have a baby. He wanted her to stay until 8 o'clock at night because he refused to learn electronic records. He wanted everything. I mean, it's just building Mm -hmm. and building and building. She has more and more things that she's trying to manage and 
figure mm-hmm. out and let alone a baby at home. This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Okay, right. I can backtrack here to tell you the three. I just pulled the record to see what the psychiatric diagnoses were given her. Major depressive disorder, severe with paranoid ideation, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay, so that that was at the time of the incident, and or and shortly, shortly after, right? So as time went on, I mean, if I can get just a snapshot for you from you, Catherine, about like what this was like for you as a mother watching this unfold. I don't know what did I write, Brooke. Well, every day it was something different in terms of physicality. Mm-hmm. I developed severe muscle spasms in my legs. Mm-hmm. And I was seeing a therapist three times a week, and finally I said to him, what is this? You take these knots out, and well, the interpretation of it is I couldn't walk forward. Mm-hmm. I could not see my way to the future. Mm-hmm. The day that she was sentenced, which was June 3rd of 2014, Leo died March 9th, she was sentenced June 3rd. My then husband told me to move out. So oh, now I, I have to find a place to live. And I, I can say that having all of that to deal with, maybe, you know, eventually the lawyer said to me, you know, you have not had a chance to grieve the loss of your grandson because 
I'm dealing with the Milwaukee County Jail. Then I'm dealing with Tachita Correctional Institution, learning that whole scheme there, finding a place to live, and going through a divorce. Sure. Right. So you have. And how did I do it? Mm -hmm. I'm a ballroom dancer. Okay. And I did not realize that the therapist said to me, I had six therapists, and the very last one, I did brain spotting. And she said, uh, dancing has saved your life. Mm-hmm. You have a spark in you that I've had people in here whose children were murdered, and they were anhedonic. Mm-hmm. They were flat. They had no feeling. And Brooke knows I'm pretty. I don't know, Brooke, what would you say about me? You're not flat. <laughs> right. No, right. you're full of life. You're full of life and full of feeling. Yeah, I think, the, you know, I was always crazy about writing. So I was a nurse for 30 years, and then I started writing in 2000 and realized now that's why I was learning to become a good writer, mm-hmm. because this is a story that needs to be told from the inside. And to right. my knowledge, I don't know that anything has been written about it the way that I wrote about it. Right. Sure. I, yeah, I think... Uh mother's perspective, the parent's perspective is a unique one. And it really points out that this is, it affects the entire family. Although one person is, you know, is specifically going through it and going through the paces of this illness and these illnesses, there is a ripple effect throughout the family. And unfortunately, the family is not often considered or talked about in terms of the long-term impacts mm-hmm. of, of such an intense experience. Um, would you say so too? Brooke? I have an amazing son who is highly intuitive and has a high EQ. And um, it was also helping him for the first two years because it was terrible. That's his only sibling. Sure. sure. <clears throat> yeah. And he and I walked through it together many other people walked away from us family because it it was like, what she did? What are you kidding? There was no frame of reference for this. And that's why I'm so grateful that you're sharing this and Brooke, that you're going to give us additional perspective because there isn't enough of a frame of reference and not the fallout within families and friend circles, like just like you're describing happens so often when there is a situation like this. And Mm -hmm. it's really, really, really upsetting for the family because this is the time of highest need. And it's also some of the loneliest time. Mm -hmm. I will say that I was surprised by the number of people who stepped up and surrounded me. I'm talking, glad to hear I'm talking 10 to 15 people who, and I'm still in touch with them. And yet the people that I would have thought would have stepped up, Mm -hmm. they evaporated. You never know until something happens, how someone's going to show up. Right. Right. But there is no framework, right? Like let's say this happened and then some good educated lawyers or social workers involved with the court sat the family down and explained to you what postpartum psychosis and infanticide was right. and gave you referrals for support and right. gave you education. And fa- I mean, without that, that holding space, yeah, families are fractured over and over again with mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. and they, the trickle out effect of the trauma is mm-hmm. devastating because then it goes on to their children or, oh, you absolutely. know, it's, yeah. And this lasts for years. 
and maybe Brooke, you can give some perspective on like cases and whatnot and the arc of the story, so to speak, in terms of time. I mean, this happened many years ago and in terms of, well, maybe start with how you got involved, Brooke, and then give us a sense of, of the, the time that it takes to get someone the help that they need. Well, when I got involved, I mean, she had already surrendered her appeal. So she pled guilty and she went to prison. And then a couple of years later, and she pled guilty because no one would help me bail her out. So put that in that wheel of misfortune. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sorry, Brooke. No, I mean, there are so many reasons she pled guilty, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, she was severely depressed. She only wanted to die. Mm-hmm. She wanted to get out of the Milwaukee County Jail because she was being... She was told prison would be better than the Milwaukee County Jail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And she, I mean, and what I'm really starting to understand about her now is that she wasn't ready or really desired to fight for herself. I mean, she truly believes she should be punished and suffering. Mm -hmm. So part of her that would think, no, I'm going to I'm going to suffer the Milwaukee County Jail and I'm going to fight for myself. That wasn't there for her. She right. was she was sort of giving up. And then we even see that now when she's like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't know if I want to be involved in the podcast. And and then she's like, wait, no, I do. I, there is this part of her that, mm. that does, but mm. there's still a part of her that... That's thanks to you, Brooke. That probably frankly wants to just get back to Leo. Mm-hmm. So she's, mm-hmm. I think she's, her motivations mm-hmm. are split. Sure. I mean, this, mm-hmm. this can't be linear or clear cut in really any way in terms of the fallout of things. I think what is always clear is that, that this, like these types of things don't come from anger or hatred. They, mm-hmm. they actually are often like, well out of psychosis, but sometimes out of the, the root of it is, is love is to end suffering. That is the part that people have a really hard time wrapping their head around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think the the altruistic philicide, the label is apt in this mm-hmm. uh, scenario. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. For listeners, can you give a little bit of a, a definition of what that means? Yeah, I mean, the famous psychologist coined it, but the idea that bringing death to the child is greater, is better than the damage or the destruction they would live through if they survived. And so killing a child is actually saving them from further torture or harm. This is the state of mind for someone who is in a postpartum psychosis episode. Right. Right. And I mean, you can trace altruistic filicide back into, you know, centuries, like during wartime or during starvation, parents may have to end their children's lives to help them escape further torture in refugee camps or whatever it may be. These are extreme conditions Conditions. under extreme amounts of stress. And I I guess so in a psychotic state of mind, no way out. Right. No way out. There's nothing available. Right. So in her, in Nora's delusion, she came to believe that she shouldn't live because she was so bad and she was abandoned. She confirming she was unlovable and she didn't think her son should have a life without a mother in particular, given who his father was. Okay. Who she 
irrationally believed that, you know, he would be more harmful to Leo than helpful. Mm-hmm. Okay. She had also really, I mean, Nora has paranoid personality disorder. She really thought the world was a bad place. She thought the daycares, other people, co-workers, I mean, she didn't find lot, a lot of safe refuge that she mm-hmm. could turn to because mm-hmm. of the way her mind worked. Sure. So, right. It became an extreme condition with one, one way out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in terms of your involvement, how did you become involved and what are you doing now? So we started corresponding and it was, you know, we had to, I had to sort of gain her trust. Of course she knew who I was and we sent letters back and forth, sort of reminiscing about where we grew up and how my brother was like the first love of her life when she was (laughs) third grade or. Oh, sure. Yeah. And then I could share with her my own personal experience with postpartum OCD, Mm -hmm. which is what got me into this field to begin with. Sure. And then she really started to open up to me about her true, true experiences during that time, which Mm -hmm. she withheld from that forensic psychiatrist. She did not paint him the full picture of her psychosis. She was not sure or clear on how to respond to all his questions. Uh So like Catherine said, he didn't give her the diagnosis of postpartum psychosis. So that... Then for me, as a psychologist, sort of hewed me into, oh, well, there's a new factor here then for her case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. So we Mm -hmm. met with her lawyer, you know, we found out she doesn't really have a lawyer anymore. And so then Catherine and I started hunting for a pro bono lawyer who would take up the post-conviction work to, you know, use a new report the new evidence, the new trends in postpartum law to see if she can get a sentence reduction. Great. And well, she's in the on circumstances board. why she didn't say all of that, they were popping her on and off of psych drugs. She was not on any psych drugs when she was in jail. I told you the how the conditions were when he interviewed her. And thirdly, Nora kept two OCD journals, one of her life her life with her partner, one about Leo. Her lawyer forgot to bring the journal to her when she was interviewed by the forensic psychiatrist. And I called the lawyer out on that. And she said, oh, I've never had a client so smart as Nora. She has a steel trap mind. She'll remember everything. Mm -hmm. Nora says she didn't. Oh, right. I mean, especially when you're in a compromised mental state under this amount of stress and pressure, mm-hmm. like it, it's implausible to say that you'll remember. She went everything. in at 135 pounds and in three months, she weighed 112. She had pustules on her face, especially around her mouth and her hair was complete grease. They wouldn't even let her comb her hair before she appeared in court. Okay. She looked like a psychotic something. She didn't look like my daughter. Right. That's heartbreaking. Um, Right. So she's under some kind of duress. Obviously, prison is and jail is a state of duress anyhow, but uh, her her care sounds, you know, I can't make any conjecture here, but there's, it sounds like it was not optimum given her condition. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you guys are in a state where you're kind of waiting, looking and waiting. Right. Uh, to find the right legal support? 
Right. I mean, it's interesting because the topic is potent. It's so charged for people. Right. And in Wisconsin in particular, there's a lot of, and a lot of leftover conservative legal views from Scott Walker's regime. And of course, a lot of religious beliefs that stand in the way of people being interested in a case like this. Okay. Right. So people might be nice, like Midwestern nice, and sort mm-hmm. of take Catherine's calls, but ultimately don't want to help with a case like this. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, it also strikes me that people might not know how to help with a case like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's not, I mean, outside of, I don't know that many institutions that are giving lawyers the tools that they need to mm-hmm. work through these cases. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I don't know what's being taught in law school and, and all that stuff, but I imagine they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. I think that's right. And one of my ideas is to be able to attend like law conferences where there's a presentation on this. So, you know, public defenders especially have just a a way to, to refer reference of this topic. Sure. Because then, you know, to get, you know, your expert witness and to look at the course of of postpartum mental health instead of what often you know is the mother is a monster or the or even worse the mother is taking out revenge on her oh, on her right. partner which is you know a horribly but overused it is overused yeah explanation so i think you're right i think there isn't a lot of people don't know a lot of lawyers don't know exactly how to help yeah And to your point, there's a lot of misconceptions about what this is and what type of people, so to speak, do these things. That's just grossly overgeneralized and way misunderstood. And because it's such, I mean, I think this type of um, situation strikes at the heart of people. This is like mother and child, and it's very confusing to people. But part of why I'm so grateful to both of you for coming on is because this education is necessary to get in front of stories and give people information so that when they hear stories like this, that they're mostly only going to hear on the news unless it's happening within their family Mm -hmm. to think to themselves, oh, maybe this is related to postpartum psychosis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I will tell you that I'm not afraid of any of this in two years in. I'm what you call a live storyteller. So I told a story in front of 150 people and they turned other people away. So it was on a a live stream and it was called, I'm going to lose my mind. Mm. And I told Nora's story. I can send you the video of it. And after that, five women came up and spoke to me and each one of them had a very similar story where they came close to the edge and came back. They all said they were going to write to my daughter. Mm. Not a single one did. And I understand why it was triggering what they had gone through and they they couldn't do it. Right. Right. I mean, and thank you for bringing that up. Um, But to your point, there's a lot of people who suffer through postpartum psychosis and largely it doesn't end in infanticide or filicide or suicide. It's a small percentage, but their Mm -hmm. risk is still there. I mean, they Mm -hmm. are suffering. Mm -hmm. Many people you know, get that the help that they need. Some people don't, but uh, right, just like you said, it doesn't always end in this particular type of tragedy. Mm-hmm. But when it does, you know, 
the person who's suffering is put in such a state of the, they are made out to be this, I think you used the word earlier, like a monster of some kind. Mm -hmm. The aggressor. Um, And their whole humanity is stripped away. This Mm -hmm. is a suffering person in the middle of all of this and and everyone needs Mm -hmm. to know that. Um, Well, I think, as you know, the other thing that after Nora was in prison for about a year, she told me that she could have a Facebook page. Now, imagine suddenly being cut off from the internet and not waking up to your iPhone every morning. So I said, okay, I'll do a Facebook page. It had to be secret. At the time, the appeal was in process, and the lawyer said, that's fine, but you cannot mention anything about the appeal. So I said, Nora, this is yours. You get to name it. Oh, mother, you're the writer. I said, listen, you've lost so much power. You have the power to name your Facebook page. It took about six weeks. Mm -hmm. And she wrote back and she said, let's call it left hand turns. Mm -hmm. I've always hated left hand turns. And my life has been a series of left hand turns. There are now 44 people on that Facebook page And I will post, and Brooke has posted on it too, from time to time, things that are sad, things that are searing. Every now and then, she's got a great sense of humor. She'll say something funny, and I'll put that on there. Recently, she just donated her hair to Love Locks. They must have cut 12 or 14 inches off of her hair. And so I am, I'm been behind, but I'll, I'll put that on. So that's a way of raising awareness. Mm-hmm. And clearly that's her voice when, right now. Mm-hmm. that's her voice. Thank you to Ritual for sponsoring this episode of Mom and Mind. We deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies and why. That's why Ritual's founder is on a mission to reinvent the vitamin industry. They are leaving out mystery additives, synthetic fillers, and shady extras that can be found in some traditional multivitamins. And that's why I love Ritual. I know what I'm taking. I know what's in it. And it helps me to make a decision about my health. I don't have to wonder about all those shady extras. For obsessive label readers, Ritual uses vegan-certified, non-GMO, gluten-free, and allergen-free ingredients. And their sources are out there for the whole world to see— because they believe you deserve to know what you're putting in your body and why. I can really get behind that. Daily changes can lead to big results. So start small today. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off your first three months. Try it out, satisfaction guaranteed. Go to ritual.com slash mom and mind to start your ritual today. That's 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com slash mom and mind. And the other thing is, I've been asked to edit a newsletter for her prison. And I, the guy who asked me, I said, well, I will do that, but I'm not going to jeopardize my daughter. Nora knew about this newsletter. It's from IWOC, which stands for Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. And it started nationwide, hmm, I think in 2014, and it started in Wisconsin in 2015. So there's that, but none of that is going to get my daughter out of prison. What's going to get my daughter out is telling the truth of her story, Mm -hmm. that she is not evil, like the judge said Mm -hmm. at her sentencing. Oh, my gosh. She suffered. In the old days, it was called a nervous breakdown. Sure. She had a freaking nervous breakdown. She's highly sensitive. She's incredibly smart, but is emotionally damaged 
from her father's abandonment when she was 12. Sure. And now also the trauma of all of this. I mean, go, going through this in an episode of a psychosis is is hard enough. And then coming out of it and dealing with the, the wake of it is its own trauma for a lot of people. Well, and that the health company that was providing health care in the Milwaukee County Jail has been sued. And Nora complained twice. You know, they said, well, fill out a, you know, incident report. She did it twice. It got worse. I'm not telling anybody anymore. Mm. There were 200 hours of phone calls between Nora and me when she was in jail. I could not discuss the case with her because the DA could listen in. So here's this psychotic girl making a decision to plead guilty. Uh, Brooke, can you speak to that a little bit? That, I mean, what happens for somebody who's in jail or in prison and what their restrictions are on them in terms of what their, or potentially what the restrictions are on them in terms of communication? Have you seen, sorry, what Catherine is talking about that, like Mm -hmm. to talk about certain things. Is that true for other cases you've seen? Yes. Yes. In fact, I was just talking to a lawyer about this yesterday because what happens is a woman is in this heightened psychotic or depressed state where her capacity is diminished And then she is put into jail that is a brutal, punishing, you know, cell where she is often maybe being taunted as a baby killer. She's being mistreated by the guards and will be assigned a public defender. But often, like we were saying earlier, they're not maybe very educated about what had just happened with you. And you don't know what just happened with you. Right. And you're still in that state, which is like I know for Nora she was she was seeing her baby flying around her cell yeah like Catherine was saying she wasn't eating mm-hmm. and she, and she was being mistreated and so you're not getting an ability to ground yourself and come mm-hmm. back into like a rational state eventually yes you you're given medications and but then still maybe counsel isn't great or it's confusing if you should plead guilty or, I mean, many women are told to plead guilty and they're saying it's easier to serve your time than go to trial where you will be exposed to graphic photos, your story being told publicly, people openly judging you. It's almost easier they're told and made to believe to just do your time. And often there's such a sense of guilt yeah. and shame that that sort of feels deserved. Oh, man. That's and exactly then- it, Brooke. She w- there was a mantra from two of the guards who kept telling her, just plead guilty, just plead guilty, yeah. just plead guilty. Oh, my goodness. And then let's say you go to prison and you start to, you know, maybe communicate with your family or you maybe read a couple articles. But still, the appeal, by the time you get to the idea of an appeal, prison is traumatizing. Yeah. And so you've lost a capacity to think in connection with the outside reality. You've lost an ability to communicate. You've lost an ability to maybe use parts of your intellect. And there is many people, it's surprising, but many people do give up their appeals as well, which is also the case with Nora. She gave up her appeal for two reasons. It was going to go back to the original charge, which was first degree intentional. That carries life. 
with it because those parameters are set, right? I mean, judge can change, but first-degree intentional is life in prison. The charge was reduced to first-degree reckless, which carried 25 to 40 years. And at the hearing, I was told by another lawyer, you got the best that you could. She only got 25 years. So Nora's conclusion was, I am not risking, number one, going back to live in the jail. I cannot do that. I was not trained as a Marine. I will not go back and live there and go back to the original charge. So it was a catch-22. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I think this really speaks a lot to the, the, the two broadest issues that might encapsulate all of this is, one, how poorly we treat mental health issues mental illness, and two, that we are working in a system that is deeply flawed. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, the idea of, of justice when both how mental health conditions are viewed and how the legal system is set up is really not in anyone's favor in a postpartum psychosis case. Mm-hmm. N- not really. I mean, I think there's a couple mm-hmm. of people who have been able to successfully, you know, get the help that they actually need instead of just prison, but it's largely goes the other way. Nora looks at the model of Holland, which is where her father was from. And she went to school at the International School of The Hague when she was a junior and lived with him. Had this occurred in Holland, she would have immediately been admitted to a healthcare facility. Mm-hmm. It would not have been a felony. It would not have had the shame. She would have been surrounded by experts who healed her. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, gosh. That's just so upsetting. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like. Well, we and in England for years, this is not England. I mean, I think it goes back to the 40s or 50s. It's not a crime there. Right. Oh, it's yeah. a yeah. mental health issue. Right. Yeah. Brooke, you have some perspective on what happens in other countries too? Yeah. I mean, I think we, it's sort of like capital punishment. Like of the developed <laughs> countries, we have some of the crudest responses. Uh Also similar to, you know, maternity leave. I mean, there's just not the valuing of the mother the way like in Sweden, right? Postpartum facilities let women sleep and they let, they take care of their children while they're still being paid for their job that they left to have the child. Uh In Australia, England, there's infanticide laws. So crime like this would not get treated as murder. I mean, the sentencing is just completely different. I don't think in Australia, a woman would even serve a day imprisoned. Okay. Australia is, I think, the most advanced, and they're doing really great research coming out of there on filicide and and laws. Yeah, it's pretty dire here. And it depends on the jurisdiction, and it depends on the lawyer you get. Sure. I mean, there was a case in New York where this woman, Lizette, she, you know, pleaded that it was postpartum psychosis. And the judge had someone in his family who had had an experience like that. And so he was able to grant her, you know, maybe she got a year and then was going to be held to community service. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's, that's like boils down to education. And I mean, yeah. well, he had personal knowledge. Yes. But our laws just don't, a- aren't equipped. I mean, the, our understanding of insanity is dates back to the 1800s. All right. And they just have not been advanced. It, it don't, they don't have the complexities to understand 
a condition, especially one where a woman may know what she's doing is wrong, but she's compelled to do it because she thinks it's the right thing. That's the better thing to do that. It, like we were saying the the altruistic filicide that it saves the baby, you know, a law, we just don't have laws advanced enough to understand that. Right. Anything else to, although there's a lot of stuff, anything else that you guys would like to bring into like clothes on, um, um, any messages that Nora has that she wants to share or, you know, anything like that? Well, I will applaud Brooke. Um, she's been a visionary and brought me to tears when she thought that the changing law in Wisconsin should be called Leo's law because my grandson didn't die for no reason. Right. He, he comes to me all the time. Mm. I feel his spirit and it's always around water. And I don't know why my daughter is still alive. She attempted suicide after she got to prison as well. And they found her with no pulse and she was two minutes from death. She's alive. And so it took her three years to get herself back. Mm -hmm. She's the person that I knew, you know. Sure, sure. She's there fighting in her own way. Right. Well, like, like Brooke said, she, I think she split down the middle. Yeah. She wants to be with her child. And then on the other hand, she's like, wait a minute. And without any support, it's pretty hard to say, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. And you asked me earlier, how did I react to all of this? Um, I did not get depressed. I did not drink. I did not go on drugs. I started working out and writing and dancing. But Mm -hmm. five years later, when Brooke came into our lives, I suffered my first and only major depression. And it was because I started from a perspective going back and looking at everything and giving Brooke backstory. And that was frightening because, you know, they often say, well, call somebody. Now I know what that's like. You cannot, I could not call. I could not speak. I've come out of that too. Right. It's it's been a journey for sure. Um, and now here you are, you know, advocating and, you know, I, I really appreciate, I first had contact with you, Catherine, when you reached out to me for transcripts of a different episode on yes. psychosis so that Nora could have those. Is that possible? To read through. Yes. I transcribed them and I them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... I know that you are a strong advocate and you are trying to help your daughter understand her own situation and help the world understand her situation. And it, it really, yeah, I appreciate your, that. like a mother's advocacy is like nothing else. There's just, because you have the heart too. And it's, I can, I can hear it when you talk about her and your situation mm-hmm. and how much love and respect you have for her. That's, mm-hmm. that's very beautiful. And, and to have partnered now with Brooke and Brooke, all of the work that you're mm-hmm. doing is also very powerful. At one point early on, Nora wrote to me, she had a handmade Christmas card that she had made in some craft class there. And then it it said, mom, thank you for still loving me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) 
Well, you're aiming more of a, we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, Mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell, Laughing in the Face of Motherhood, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. And she really, she really knows that you love her. I mean, that is a strong, you guys have a strong connection. You have the heart, Catherine, but you also have the words. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You do. Your words, your poetry that you've written, the vignettes you refer to that, I mean, it is so powerful. It's so clear. Your voice is so strong. And I think that is healing for both of you guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that I hope... Yeah, that continues. I think that I have come through many sort of stages of understanding Nora, and I know there will be more. Mm-hmm. But I I sort of recently have been, you know, like she's alive, like you're saying, Catherine. You know, she mm-hmm. she is alive also as a symbol in the psyche and like in our collective psyche. I mean, this goes back to like the story of Medea, you know, this the woman that takes the ch- the lives of her children this this very dark taboo place that that is actually very real in women's right. minds and that we don't our ideas of motherhood actually create dangerous oppression for women because we oh, believe yep. it's supposed to be so wonderful and fulfilling and that we are supposed to be happily self-sacrificing mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And being fulfilled as if it's like the pinnacle of our femininity and our our purpose in this world. Right. When mm-hmm. over and over again, we find out it's not. And then right. what do you do with that feeling? It's really dangerous for a woman to sometimes admit she doesn't feel great about being a mother, that something right. is off. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you there are six women who have confided in me how they almost took the life of their child. One of them was a woman who was 70, 70 when this happened. And she told me that she was 19 and had this child and would 
was in school, had to quit college, would leave the baby alone in the crib during the day and walk the streets of this very famous town. I said, did you ever tell anyone? Did your husband? No, no, never told anyone. She sat and poured her story out to me. There's another woman who said, I put my child in one of those little jumper things and she would go to the edge of the stairs and I'd think, okay, maybe you'll just fall down the stairs and I'll be out of this. I can't tell you how many people have confided their stories in me like it's some confessional. Right, right. So uh, yes, Medea is very real, Brooke. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. this this really, really does highlight the disservice we do to women to essentially societally tell them, like you said, Brooke, that's, this is mm-hmm. supposed to be the pinnacle of their being. And how, how do you deal with them internally? as a mother, um, as a parent, when you don't meet that standard in your mind. So, I mean, all of this is incredibly powerful to hear. I I think really difficult, really difficult stuff for people to wrap their minds around. So I thank you for bringing both of your perspectives here and giving us the information that you can. And I thank Nora for giving us permission to talk about her story And hopefully this will reach people who need to hear it and need to understand the reality and the gravity of this and that, you know, help is available. Help is there. It's just incredibly hard to find sometimes. But now that you guys have have shared this with us and we can get ahead of people, so to speak, and let them know Mm -hmm. that there are people who know what this feels like and believe them and that there's help, hopefully this also gives a, a bit of hope in people's dark, dark feelings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I try to help my clients move beyond feeling like there's something wrong with them. I mean, it's really easy to just qualify this as like another woman's health issue or that this is some pathology that only exists in women, but really it's a social, it's a society issue. And this is a symptom of it. And it's right. the this, this society's way of treating what motherhood should be that traps a woman into feeling like a failure. Right. But if we sort of look at the broader strokes, like, all, you know, these cases you hear over and over again about how there wasn't a supportive husband or the woman was being abused by her husband or the husband traveled all the time, but he's not bad. She's the bad one. I mean, that's Mm, what you're saying. Right. That's what has to shift. I mean, this doesn't just occur in an isolated, you know, world. This is, she's a part of a system. The the mom has a context there and all of those variables contribute to that final moment of what maybe is outrage, which which is maybe like, I finally can't take it anymore right. of what has been colluding here against me. It's not right. necessarily a pathology that it just exists within her, but a reaction to a greater problem. So Brooke, with that, what would you say, like, what would be a message that you could give to people who are at that level of suffering or around how, like, what can they do? What could they do to get help and get out of that feeling? Mm -hmm. I I mean, I think psychologically really understanding that motherhood is equally dark and light and dark feelings are just as normal and that we should never be in it alone to constantly be asking for help and good help, not 
not sort of putting up with what you see over and over again. It's just like horrible, horrible husbands. Right. And, and I guess to that end as well, I mean, what about for uh, family members who are listening to this? Mm. What, what can they do to, to help? Mm -hmm. To really say, you know, no, I I can see something is off here. So we're going to do something about this. And and, and if the, you know, the mom is like, no, I I can handle this or there's nothing wrong to challenge her on that and to be able to step in and and help anyways, to help anyways. Exactly. Right. Right. I think it would be really nice. Yeah. Trust your hunch. That's good. Yeah. 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 I mean, I look back at it and I can see that there were all these little indicators, but they were minuscule. Uh They, I didn't see a pattern and Nora has been very forgiving to me. She said, mom, you couldn't, you were so close to me and Leo. I was the one who was helping and I worried about her constantly not sleeping. She slept four hours a night. She'd be up cleaning because cleaning was the only thing she could control. Right. I mean, those those are great indicators too, um, Mm -hmm. for for people who are Mm -hmm. listening. How do you know when something's not quite right? For sure, loss of sleep. And if you see like behaviors at odd times of the day uh, that don't seem like characteristic of that person, I mean, these are all things to look at. So I thank you for bringing that in, Catherine. I have a family member who's a physician and delivers babies. And after she had her child, she said, I was an academic and I, you know, I'd studied all this stuff. When the baby arrived, she said, I hated that child for the first four months. Mm. The only way we got through it was with my husband. And finally, I stopped breastfeeding. And the other thing that she had going for her, she and some other women who had delivered at the same time were texting one another about how miserable they were. They could tell one another the truth. So I would say, do not be afraid of the truth. Mm. If you're feeling this, you're not the only one feeling it. Right, right. Absolutely. I mean, you you pointed to some of really amazing, let me restate that. Those are key in support. We know this to be true, that this like peer support, having someone who gets it, And then also Mm -hmm. having people around you who can be supportive and help. These are really, really important. I mean, to both of your points, nobody who goes through this is in a vacuum. They need help from people around them. Mm -hmm. And even though people around them might be helping because of this pressure of of things needing to be perfect, they might not be able to tell us all the time when they're suffering. The other thing that is starting to change, and I only know that from Nora's colleagues who stay in touch with her, The prenatal care screening is beginning to change for recognizing people who are at risk for this and also the postpartum care because typically a woman would go back six weeks later for her own checkup, but then who is she seeing the rest of the time? The pediatrician. And Nora said to the pediatrician, da-da-da-da-da, she told her, told him what was going on at home. And all he said was, and I'm not faulting him, it was not his background, he said, well, sounds like you're going to have to make some changes. Mm-hmm. Now, if that had been a family practitioner who saw the mother and the baby, that person would have been more keyed into the dyad, the mother and the baby. Mm-hmm. So we need better 
postpartum screening. And I, mm. I've seen some of the forms that are now being developed to help women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the general movement is better pre, uh, perinatal care all around pregnancy and mm-hmm. postpartum, but absolutely to your point, we need more support mm-hmm. in the postpartum as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I just wanted to also point out, you know, the work that's being done in Illinois because of the new law that got passed, which I know you're familiar with Dr. Cat is amazing. I mean, we've identified like over 20 women who are incarcerated at the women's prison in Illinois who may be able to get their sentences reheard. That's amazing. It is. And I just finished a report for one of them and it's looking good for her. So fantastic. that's good news. And that's the idea is to bring some of that legal change to other states like this. Oh my gosh. I really hope so. Well, that is fantastic news. I mean, that there's hope. That That is kind of all we need uh, sometimes. We need more than that. But right now, having this changed in one state, I'm really hoping that this spreads. And I know with the, such strong advocacy from you and so many other people who are doing this work, that is actually possible. So thank uh-huh. you. Thank you for all that you do, Brooke. And um, thank you, Catherine, for coming on and, and sharing with us your story. You're welcome. And, thank and you for story. having us. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing all this with us. It's it's such an education and also I'm grateful that we can also end on a little bit of hope for the future. Right, right. Yeah, thanks for taking on this topic and it's great what you're doing. I love listening to your podcast. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it's <laughs> fabulous what you're doing. I hope it helps. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. Thank you. Her cousins in Holland will listen. Mm, Great. Perfect. Thank you. Yep. Thank you and bless you. Bless you both. As you can hear from this episode and this conversation, it's incredibly complex what happens both mentally for women who are dealing with postpartum mental health conditions, uh, but also legally. There's just nothing in place, nothing good in place for sure, to make sure that women are getting what they need and not being treated like criminals who have intent to harm. We still have so far to go when it comes to this. And of note, not everybody who has postpartum psychosis does infanticide or filicide. This is very, very rare, but it's also still very, very serious. Many, many women have a postpartum psychosis and it does not get to that level. In any case, we need to be doing much better across the board and on all levels. And that includes advocating in this way, through the podcast, through talking about it, through stigma reduction, through advocating, through speaking up in the court, if we can be there. This is a heavy topic and also a necessary one for us to be discussing. So thank you again, Nora, for allowing us to talk about your story and your life. And hopefully this can get to somebody who needs to hear it and can help advocate for other women. Thank you, Catherine and Brooke, for your time and your love and expertise and support of Nora and the rest of the women who are suffering. If this is your first time joining us on the Mom and Mind podcast, we would love to have you back again. And you can come back by subscribing so that each and every episode gets downloaded straight to your device as it comes out. Wherever podcasts are played is where you can hear us. Thank you so much for being with us. Until next time. 
you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.